Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Earlier today, President Trump tweeted that he's asked the SEC to study ending quarterly reporting for U.S. businesses to, quote, allow greater flexibility and save money. Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman voiced support for the idea on Bloomberg today. I think quarterly reporting, and to put it bluntly, I think it's asinine. Every 13 weeks, and by the way, quarters come around with alarming frequency, right? They, they, I've been trying to get this thing to stop, but at least, you know, this is one thing the Brits uh, definitely uh, have figured out with the six-month reporting. Joining me is Peggy Collins, Bloomberg News U.S. investing team leader. So, Peggy, it seems natural that corporations would welcome getting rid of two reports a year. But what are the dangers? Well, a couple of the dangers are that investors have less transparency, right? So we've seen this in the news of late with Elon Musk saying he might take Tesla private. And one of the reactions that we've had from shareholders or shareholder activists is that, well, you're not getting as much information then in terms of what the company's earnings might be, what their executive pay is to influence whether you buy or sell. The other potential is that when companies are in the dark more, there's more potential for them to do nefarious things, such as insider trading, for example, and for it to be harder for people to spot or for companies to be more worried about doing it in the first place and because they might get caught. So what are some of the less obvious advantages to corporations besides just not the extra work? Well, I think, as you said, the extra work and also costs for smaller companies, a number of the complaints that we've heard is that with all the regulation today and the requirements from the SEC of reporting, that if you're a smaller company, that's a big burden. And therefore, there's more and more smaller companies that say, I'm not going to go public. I'm going to stay private because I don't want to have to do all those things. So that's one of the things. I think another point is that we've talked to some people today who said it could make financial analysts more popular or Uh valuable. Because they are supposed to be talking to companies regularly. And so if the public has information on a less frequent basis, they the financial analysts who put out reports could be become more important. So Peggy, this was released by the White House. I to clarify President Trump's tweet, it says the president is interested in examining this issue on whether short term earnings reporting requirements for 
public companies reduce incentives for them to engage in long-term investing in the United States, a part of the administration's ongoing regulatory reform efforts. So put in that context, does that give you more insight into what he's looking for? So that's something definitely that I've been hearing over the last few years, covering a variety of investors and family offices that invest in companies in the U.S. that aren't public, a lot of family-owned businesses across the country. And one of the things that we've heard repeatedly is that companies are saying, you know what, if we're under this pressure every quarter to hit certain numbers in order for our shareholders and the stock price to be in the limelight in a good way, that prevents us from sometimes putting money into research and development efforts that would actually benefit the company over the longer term. So I'm not going to go public. I'm going to take some private investment money. So that way I can spend some more money in the shorter term on the long term value of building another plant or or doing some research on technology, for example. The SEC has been reticent to make changes. Where does it stand? Well, the Trump tweet this morning was surprising for a lot of us, including <laughs> me. Um, and so people have asked, you know, how quickly could they do something like this? My opinion is not very fast. Most regulatory items and certainly something that would be such a sea change like this one take a long time to go through. There's a lot of public comments and studies and um, and this might have to go through Congress. So I think it would take a while to, ha- to happen. The SEC also has a lot on its plate between Elon Musk and Tesla and all sorts of things. The SEC is always busy, but would it be likely to initiate this kind of a a fundamental change? I think it's possible. We've seen this happen in other places around the world. You played that clip from Mm -hmm. James Gorman, and essentially what happened in the UK of late in the last decade or so is that they switched to a more six-month model of reporting. There's mixed results on what that has actually mean. In some cases, companies have actually continued to put out the same types of information on a more regular basis than six months anyway. But it is one of those things that it's possible. There's precedence for it. There's certainly a lot of corporate uh, uh, excitement around it. And we've seen President Trump say things and actually get them done in some cases faster than people expected. And with less and less regulations, who knows what will happen? So just we have about a minute here. What's your What's your opinion of it? It's a good question. I think... The first thing that came to my mind, it, being a journalist, is that more information is usually better than less. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I was a personal finance reporter for many years here at Bloomberg before um, leading our investing coverage. And that was the first thing that came to my mind, that I, I usually defer to the fact that if you have more information and shareholders have more information on what a company is doing, that it keeps them more accountable, but it also helps you make a, a more informed decision on whether to buy or sell. I think you'll have quite a while before we actually get to that point if we do. Thanks so much, Peggy. That's Peggy Collins, Bloomberg News U.S. Investing Team Leader. At a cabinet meeting yesterday, President Trump addressed the continuing fight against opioid addiction in the U.S., asking Attorney General Jeff Sessions to take legal action. I'd also like to ask you to bring a major lawsuit against the drug companies on opioids. Some states have done it, but I'd like a lawsuit to be brought against uh, these companies that are uh, really sending opioids at a level that uh, it shouldn't be happening. 
Joining me is Richard Osnes, a professor at the University of Kentucky Law School. Richard, drug makers are also already facing more than 900 lawsuits by more than 25 cities, states, counties, and others over opioid addiction, most of those in federal court. And the Trump administration has filed a request to join settlement talks in the multi-district litigation in Ohio. So why have the Justice Department bring a separate suit? Well, I think the the theories that they would uh, use are somewhat different from uh, the theories that the other plaintiffs have been bringing in in the litigation that you spoke of. Uh, In particular, there are a variety of federal statutes that uh, the drug companies, and when I say drug companies, I mean manufacturers, distributors, and uh, large-scale retail sellers, uh, that they may have violated some of these federal statutes. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and indeed, uh, the uh, federal government has brought suits against most of these uh, pharmaceutical companies and uh, has either won or has reached settlements that were very favorable to them. Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm guessing that they don't want to get caught up in a settlement process, a, a global settlement process, which is which is what would come out of the multi-district litigation. So, if there, so if there's a global settlement process going on in the multi-district litigation, and then there's a federal, a separate federal lawsuit, would that affect the settlement process? Well, uh, not directly. Uh, of course, um, uh, realistically, there's only so much money the drug companies have, so to the extent that they pay some of that uh, to the federal government, there'll be less left for the other uh, plaintiffs, assuming that there is a settlement. Now, uh, what about criminal proceedings by the Justice Department? Well, that's a very real possibility, because many of these federal statutes I spoke of uh, are criminal as well as civil, uh, and, uh, and therefore there's the prospect of some pretty substantial criminal liability, even jail time, theoretically, although, of course, you can't put a corporation in jail, but you can put their officers uh, in jail. And that almost happened about 10 years ago with um, Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. They were charged with uh, mislabeling, uh, which in that case meant that their um, sales reps were telling doctors that, uh, making statements to doctors that were um, contradictory to what the labeling on the product approved by the FDA said. And they were ultimately fined about $600 million, and there was serious talk about uh, sending some of the top uh, executives to jail, and and instead they were fined very substantial amounts of money as well on these criminal charges. What do you see and what has history shown us about the effectiveness of litigation as a tactic to fight drug abuse? Well, I don't think the track record is very good, at least not so far. Of course, the the only things we have to to compare this with is the tobacco litigation of uh, some 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And that certainly resulted in a very large settlement that went to the states. But I'm not sure people gave up smoking. Um, And indeed, it was almost a devil's bargain because now the, the... the states, at least, uh, that were parties to that settlement uh, had a strong incentive not to put the tobacco companies out of business because uh, that would kill the goose that was laying the golden egg. Um, as far as the, the present um, litigation is concerned, uh, I'm um, uh, skeptical that um, 
it will have much of an effect. Uh, it might, of course, uh, drug companies might change their conduct in response to uh, the prospect of even more um, damage awards. But um, in the past, they've pretty much just taken it as a cost of doing business and moved on. Even that very substantial uh, fine that I spoke of earlier, $600 million, uh, Purdue just blew it off. They paid the money, and they went back to pretty much doing what they'd been doing before. So uh, I don't know that it would uh, uh, really uh, address the problem very, very much. Only a, mi- only a minute here on a topic that certainly deserves a, a, a lot of consideration. But So is the answer then in legislation? What's the best answer? Well, I think that's certainly part of it. I think in addition... Um, the federal government in particular is going to have to um, uh, finance uh, some uh, programs to try to deal with the addiction problem. Uh, You know, you've got perhaps as many as two million people who are addicted, and they're going to stay addicted perhaps for the rest of their lives. And so you can't just um, uh, leave them out there. You have to do something to to help them, and there isn't much available uh, at the present time. And, of course, giving the states a lot of money doesn't mean they're going to spend it on these kinds of programs. It's a a really serious problem. Almost 72,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses last year alone. Thanks so much for joining us in this conversation, Richard. That's Richard Ostis, professor at the University of Kentucky Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.